right, hello everyone, and welcome to EdTech Toolbox. I am Brad Wade, and you're saying to yourself, what's going on? Yes, this is EdTech Toolbox with a twist. You're used to seeing your host, Andrew Mowat, but guess what? Today, we're flipping roles. Today, I am going to be hosting the show, and I am going to be interviewing him. You know why? Because he has so much amazing stuff that he's not going to talk about himself. So, Andrew, it is so good to see you. How are you today, my friend? I'm I'm perfect. Thanks very much. I'm doing very well still to be vertical given the time. And we were just talking off air about both of us having had our COVID jabs. So anything that I say, I'm going to blame. Uh, if it doesn't come out the right way, I'm going to blame the uh, the Pfizer jab. So how's that for an out? <laughs> I love it. That's great. I had my Pfizer jab as well less than 48 hours ago. That was what we were talking about before we went on. So, Andrew, for those people who maybe this is their first time, I'm going to kind of set the scene. So everybody watching, if this is your first time or listening, as mentioned, I am Brad Wade. I do a lot of work with my great friend, Andrew. This is his show. And today, what he usually does is he interviews people from all over the world, ask them to share their expertise, their stories to help you out there in your educational technology needs, your education needs, whatever it is. Well, today I'm going to interview him because he is your metacognition guru that has incredible stories. He's been heard all around the world. His information gets shared with people all over the world, educators, students, administrators. So, Andrew, it is so good to see you. You're an Aussie who's been nine years in Singapore. So before I get to my specific questions, can you just you know share a little bit about yourself? And then I want to dive into this uh, interview. Sounds, uh, sounds like fun. Look, I'm the classic jack of all trades. Started as a biology teacher, actually in the first year that the Macintosh was released, 1984. Now that does two things. It says how bloody old I am, if I can say the word bloody, and Australians say bloody all the time. So that's how old I am. Uh, and it, it, I think it tweaked a bit of my professional DNA to always have an interest in technology. And from there, I've run labs in the days when it was just one person running a lab. Uh, I was the uh, lead, if you like, ed tech person for a Greenfields First Nations school in Victoria. Um, I was a primary school principal. I became a coach consultant trainer for a number of years. And then I came back into the school setting to be the director of um, IT at the Australian School here in Singapore. And I moved from there to become the head of learning development for the group that owned the Australian or still owns the Australian School, uh, a company called Cognitive. So I spent a number of years developing learning programs. So, you know, I've had a bit of a go at many things, um, a real generalist, but with some depth to the breadth, I guess, uh, particularly around this idea of metacognition and, and how the brain plays out in education. It's my uh, burning platform, I think. And, and that's so perfect because that really leads me to the first thing I really want to ask you about. I've seen so much of your work and it's fascinating. So please share with everybody why metacognition in the brain and education? Well, it's a little bit strange in education that we're trying to influence an organ of the body that's between our ears, yet there's so little of our pedagogy, the way that we teach that takes account of this historically. Now that's changing and it's changing quickly. But when I was first taught to become a teacher, no one talked about the brain as something that's important to consider. Uh, and to be fair, at that time, and we're going back a few decades now, 
neuroscience really hadn't got its teeth into the opportunity that's there. And since the 90s into the 2000s and beyond, some research has come out and is continuing to come out that really starts to inform our practice around things that work, things that we know that have always worked, and some things that are fads. I'm going to call out one fad now as an example. That's left brain, right brain. There's no scientific basis for this idea of creative on the right side and logical on the left. It's, it's one of those things we do in education. It's a model that sounds good. It's got the brain in it. It's got to be, we've got to be good with this. And, and of course, uh, it, the brain just doesn't work that way. Uh, the brain continually trips us up with models we try to apply and it shows us how wrong we are. But really the core of all of this is to try and bring practice and align it with what we know now about the neuroscience and educational neuroscience, social neuroscience in particular, and to become better at the game of improving the learning for kids by knowing how we're changing. We even call it brain-based education. Where else is it? It's not in your feet. It's not in your knees. That's how bad we've been at it. It's fascinating. It has this native and natural curiosity that comes with it. So people do like to learn about it. But for me, it's about taking what we know. How does that apply and move into the practice? Now, that's adult learning as well. In fact, I do more teaching myself of adults than, uh, than of children. But that's the, that's the passion. So, so you mentioned neuroscience and really our journey in understanding the brain. And I love what you said. Well, of course, brain-based education, that's brain-based learning. That's where it happens. So, so let me tell me about this. How does it help us knowing more about the brain and neuroscience? How does that help us in education with like our, our pedagogy and stuff as we move forward? If you think back at the time you're at college or university, and you had the lecturer that spoke to you for an hour, think about how long your attention lasted. And here's one example, just this idea of attention. Now, attention, we still don't know what attention really is, but attention is the currency of learning. And without it, if, if I was to describe it as a part of a pipeline where at, before we have attention, we have this massive stream of um, broadband data coming in through our senses, and our attention captures that, passes it to our working memory where we do some stuff, and then gets passed to our long-term memory. Now, if it doesn't come into that pipeline, if information we want kids to acquire that might be used for um, application or utility in some way in the future, it's got to get into long-term memory via working memory, via attention, via sensory input. And simply knowing that model means, well, heck, I've got to make sure that I manage attention really well. And that's not just behavioural management, but it's also learning design. How can, I, how can I work through the learning design? This is the question I ask of technology as well. How can technology help us capture and hold attention so that we get better bang for buck in the learning? So there's a, a small case in point. And if you ask most teachers about how do you manage strategically and tactically the attention in your room and what do you know about attention, attention becomes really interesting when you do look at the neuroscience. It's a, it's a blend of alertness and focus. And if you know this, you can manipulate your learning environment, your learning design, your delivery design, even your assessment. You can... Um, take advantage of the knowledge so you improve the learning for the kids. A good friend of mine asked me today, what's my why? 
And he boiled right down. The why is all about improving the learning outcomes for kids to meet a changing and different demanding world. And so that's what this is all about. If you know about the neuroscience, you can modulate the way you teach to, to improve the bang for buck with your learning. Thank you. For, that was incredible. And I want to go back because you synthesized it so well. And I want to re- reiterate two points that you brought up. One was a phrase that I thought was absolutely wonderful. Attention is the currency of learning. I love that. I, I may steal that. Uh, I'll give you credit, but I may drop that from time to time. because <laughs> I love that. I think that's brilliant. Thank you. Uh, the next part that I want to just reinforce what you said was you you talked through the steps of what it takes to learn, you know, the long-term memory, you know, how learning has to get through the certain, you know, levels and the certain stages and get it to long-term to become application and things like that, that they can really use in different situations throughout their life. And then you quickly talked about models and, you know, you're, you're one of the, you know, worldwide leaders on knowing the models, at least in my opinion, I say that because I know how how well-versed you are on understanding a lot of the global models that we use. And you come from the lens of this makes sense because from what we know in metacognition and neuroscience, learning takes place like this. And that's why when we follow models like the SAMR model or the AGES model, whatever it might be, it is giving us uh, another visual component, information graphic, whatever you say, to, to look and check against like, Good. If we follow these models, whatever model it is, we know that we're helping the students along their path of learning in the brain because the end result is, yes, we want them to be able to apply that information, keep it and use it during different situations. So that's wonderful. Thank you for that explanation. Now, I want to ask you another part to that question. So knowing all this information, because it's one thing to have all of it, it's another thing to understand it. What do you think? see as some of the challenges that we are facing, you know, whether we're implementing this, you know, whether it's at the classroom level, at the administrative level, in leadership, what are some of the challenges you see that we are facing? I think the way that we've always taught is not going to get us to where we need to be. You know, we've got a crazy world. I mean, who, who would have thought the world as it is now. And so one of the problems in education is that education historically has not been adaptive. And I think that it's framed by two constraints. One is the curriculum, which constrains what we teach. And the other is the timetable, when we teach. Now, fortunately, we can start to blur the edges with why and how, and it's the how that we can really work on with education. So first of all, disseminating at scale professional learning so people can take advantage of things like neuroscience, things like educational technology developments. Disseminating professional development at scale, we've not solved in education. So for me, the biggest challenge on the way to doing the best we can for kids is to find ways to engage and deliver learning so that it makes a change. Now, I'll just explain that one step further so you really get the impact of this. And I did a study for the Education Department Victoria a number of years ago where I looked at PD, professional learning, professional development, CPD, whatever language you want to call it, around um, technology and how much transferred into the classroom. And this was in the mid-90s. And on my analysis, there was less than 5% of the time and content actually transferred 
into classroom practice. Why? People would come after school, do a two-hour block, they'd go back to school. There's no none of the, the, the pillars of change, like the ability to experiment, um, collaborate, test, hypothesize, practice, play, fall over. None of that was possible. You'd go back straight into year five, maths, nine o'clock the next day, meetings after school, parents. So that's one of the big challenges. Now, I to go back to the original story I was going to tell you, I used to deliver day-long programs, and I don't do that anymore. I would go and fly into a country, and I'd deliver often around things like conversations, uh, courageous conversations, or um, around other elements that were important strategically, and I'd do a day. Why? Because it's easier to pull teachers out of school for a day. But here's the thing, teachers would prefer, particularly in Asia and Australia, I don't know about the US, teachers prefer to go on a Saturday so they don't have the interruption to their class program. It's cheaper for the school because they don't have to replace the teacher. And it's also easier organisationally, but it's crap for learning. A day-long program, regardless of whether it's on the weekend in someone's own time or not, you get such small transference. Think about the ages model, attention, generation, emotion, and spacing. So you give, I, I actually calculated how many learning points I was delivering in a day, 60 learning points in one of my programs in a day. How can you carry that professionally into a change of behavior, change of action, a growth in your potential as a leader or as a teacher in a whole day block? So professional learning, the way we've always done it is broken. COVID helped uh, helped us understand it's broken. COVID didn't break it. And so now, now for instance, I'm delivering 30 to 40-minute sessions. I did that today. Every two weeks, I deliver a 40-minute session into a group of schools in Hong Kong. And that means they get uh, a chunk, just one chunk of content. They get two weeks to process it, act on it, deliver it, try it, process it, come back again. We do another chunk that builds on that over time. So for me, if we truly want schools to change, teachers are the most component, important component of that and helping teachers learn to do stuff better, delivering. So applying the learning design I spoke about before that's metacognitively sound to teacher development, I think is the big challenge. That's that's awesome. So so now piggybacking on professional development, because I'm glad you, you brought that up because I was going to ask you about what professional development should look like moving forward. So I, I, I love that idea because it looks at the way students would learn what's most efficient. Now looking at the way teachers can learn, the way they can implement practice, because we all know, you know, we're all teachers and educators when we go to professional development, you know, I mean, unless it's absolutely great, you know, we're, you know, we're there to put in our time. You know, we hope it's going to be high quality, but most of the time us as teachers don't have a say on what's coming in. So it, we hope it's going to be interesting and valuable. And what we hope as professional development uh, people ourselves is we hope that what we're doing, they can go back and use. So we are very thoughtful about that implementation process. So so thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Now, let's let me ask you this. Now, this is going to be two two questions. The first one is, you know, where do teachers go from here? Like what someone listening or watching this, what's something that you would recommend that they can do after hearing this? So the first thing is to build a professional learning network or a PLN. Um, The place that's most popular for teachers at the moment is Twitter. Now, that builds the connection part of it. 
the relationship part with other professionals through which you can engage in and discuss and explore. But it doesn't provide much of a content or a, um, a process piece. Uh, so for me, it's a blended approach. Now, we're talking in classrooms about flipped and blended. I call it fab learning, flipped and blended learning. So what that means for me is, and I, I'm still evolving through this, my first step away from the day-long program was to recognize I shouldn't be delivering in a full day. So I chunked my content down into three one-hour webinars before COVID, would you believe? Um, <laughs> and that was seen as a little bit um, unusual and different. Why would you do webinars? And then to do a three-hour explorative immersion, which wasn't content-based, but explored um, scenario-based training, uh, particularly around courageous conversations, for instance. And that started to get a bit of a hybrid model going. That moved into COVID where I split that up into six one-hour sessions, again, the same model, but it was all now, instead of being face-to-face -face immersive, it was online immersive. That evolved into... Actually, one hour is hard to get into the schedule and the calendar of the cadence of a school. So could a school cope with 30 minutes? Of course it can. But in that 30 minutes, it's not 30 minutes of content. It's present some ideas, get participants to work and do the work through those ideas, join some dots, and then decide what they'll do with that. So it actually added pressure on the delivery to make sure I didn't fall into the trap of just occupying 30 minutes of time with my stuff. You've got to be tight and you've got to manage this. And I don't always get it right still. So the final evolution is I've worked out all of the stuff that I don't need me to do live. So now my, my programs are looking like content stuff is completely flipped. So if you want to learn about the conversation model or, or the four levels of listening or um, the ages model and the summer model in, in technology in the, in the program that we've in the course we're running at the moment, then you can look at that as a standalone, self-paced piece of work, chunked down into five to 10 minute sections. And then you come onto a live session where we explore, immerse and experiment with, find application for, typical flipped approach. But to finish that uh, in many ways, the first place that you can come to, to give a free and unshame, uh, shameless is the word I should say, a shameless plug, and that's to learning.ignitedtech.com, which is where we're hosting this podcast and where a whole series of different opportunities for learning, free and paid, are being presented. In this model where we get, you know, whole lots of assets, we get discussion, uh, you need, learning is complex. You need to make sure that we deliver the options, the complexity options, where it's not just someone a talking head for now. It's got to be acquire this knowledge, apply it here, talk to this person over there, have a go at it, fall over, have a failure, get frustrated, come back, talk it through. So it's a really sort of coachy, facilitative type model of, of content and new behavior acquisition. At the end of the day, it's not about whether you remember my models. It's about whether they help you change the way that you're doing something um, because it's the change that really is the measure. That's awesome. And I will corroborate all of that. And I'm going to jump on the PLN part, uh, you know, encouraging teachers and educators, administrators, anybody in education, Twitter is a wonderful place to go to make connections, you know, all over the world. Because the way I, I even used to present on social media and getting connected on Twitter and things. And here's, here's how I, I will share this. So you're a teacher in a building, you can go to the teacher's lounge. 
and you can talk about your craft, you can talk about resources. What if you're in a building where there's only one teacher per grade? So you, you can't talk, you know, if you're a third grade teacher, you can't talk to another third grade teacher. You can jump right on Twitter and ask a third grade tweet teacher. One of the things I, one of the stories that happened to me individually, I was teaching, I was presenting at a private school and there was a Latin teacher there. And this was, oh, this is 2013, right? You know, early days of Twitter. 2013, I was talking about, you know, you know, your PLN. That was what my session was on after I gave the keynote. And the Latin teacher was just amazed. And so we got this teacher set up on Twitter. And before I even left for the day, she was already connected to a couple other Latin teachers around the world. Think about that. She had her own teacher's lounge where she could go and say, hey, I'm working on this Latin project. Any recommendations? Because just like we know, you know, a lot of it just comes with, you know, who has done it before, the experience, how many times people have done it, what resources they have. So I encourage everybody out there to get connected uh, on Twitter, whatever social media you like. But Twitter's a great one, as, as Andrew mentioned. It's great for building relationships. You know, you can get a lot of good resources. And then, you know, what you talked about, you know, the coursework, it's, I'll, I'll take it to a kin, is kind of like, you know, Teachers Pay Teachers came around and really kind of changed the way we view getting resources because, you know, it's like almost like self-vetted, self-validated. You know, like if you like it and you see it, it's like, well, of course, why wouldn't I get a teacher to, you know, get some resources from them? I'm not talking about the pay model. I'm talking about where experience helps experience. So having, you know, professional development now also can look like a course that you couldn't get into, whether it's free or paid, you know, whether it's self-paced or live or a nice blend, it's nice to give options. And then really, you know, if somebody's credible and validated and does a really good job, hey, why not? You know, as you mentioned, yeah. things were broken and COVID is kind of, you know, giving us an opportunity to reevaluate a lot of things. You know, how can we connect with people? How can we learn? How can we structure our time to get meaningful results out of it? Now, I know I've taken so much of your time and I appreciate it. I know in Singapore, whenever somebody's watching this, it's late where he is and it's early where <laughs> I am. So I know he's, he's, he's being very kind to all of us. So thank you for that. As we start to wrap up, Andrew, I'd like to just kind of circle back to the brain and wrap up as we, we finish here. Uh, what, in your opinion, what are some steps we can take to kind of optimize that, you know, the learning process, including, you know, using the brain? How, what are some of the steps we can take to optimize that entire process? I think become a student of the brain. That's the first thing. Uh, and I'm going to call out, I'm a real fanboy of a Professor Andrew Huberman. Andrew Huberman runs uh, a podcast called The Huberman Lab, and it's just, I think it's required listening or watching. It's similar to this, where he will speak to audio and speak to video, so people can consume it in video form and audio form. Um, and that's where I got some of the ideas for this uh, podcast, in fact, to sort of double up and hybridise. Uh, and the he has shocked me with what neuroscience is saying about how people learn. So just as a quick illustration, kids learn from experience, but they don't have much agency over their experience, and we've spoken about that before. So teachers are really the custodian of experience for kids, the right and the best and the deepest experience for learning. But it turns out that's not the case for adults. And if there's some weird stuff where 
if you insert some probes into people's brains and you ask them to stimulate any part of their brain to replicate feelings that people get that they want to have, the most sought-after feeling is frustration. And it's real. Why? But it, actually, frustration is the emotion and the state that drives most adult learning, not experience. And I used to you say to people, um, as a result of this, your brain will change. I never say that anymore. It's wrong. So there's stuff that I've been saying in the past that I know is wrong. And that's what why, even what I'm saying now, I know that in the future, the models I've got now may be proven not to be 100% correct or even 30% correct. So I think being agile with your understanding and being able to say, well, I've held on to that idea for a long time, but the neuroscience is telling us this now. So that's an example of it. Um, neuroscience, sorry, neuroplasticity, I'm so used to saying neuroscience, but neuroplasticity does not really happen at the time of teaching. So there's another weird fact. Neuroplasticity, the change that occurs, happens in two times only, sleep or non-sleep deep relaxation, NSDR. It doesn't happen at the time. So the, that's why sleep's so important. So once you understand things like what are the key inputs, sleep, um, fitness, good, good diet, hydration, and an ability to regulate, self-regulate, manage down or manage up. Uh, once you know that they're the key five inputs, work hard to provide those in your teaching environment. So make sure kids are well-fed. Make sure they get good sleep. Now, as a teacher, you can't do that. But as parents, we, we can. Um, make sure the kids have got activity. Um, seeing bright light early in the morning for 10 minutes sets your brain up for learning for the rest of the day. We learn in 90-minute cycles. So the 90-minute sleep cycle continues on through the day, and we have peaks where we learn well, and then we trough in cycles of 90 minutes during the day. So the challenge for education is that it's not aligned with a lot of this. We don't structure our teaching around these 90-minute ultradian cycles. So what do you do as a teacher when a kid comes into your classroom and he's at the bottom of that peak? It's you've got to, But you know it now, so therefore you can help manage it. And you can help people use techniques to re-energize or to provide greater approach to the use of the arousal that we're at. So all of it comes from being a student of the brain. So the more you know, the more you can use that. And the last thing that I'd, I'd add to that, and this is a fairly recent insight I've had, I've had, I wrote about it today on LinkedIn, we take very little account of emotions. Yet emotions are a critical part of the learning process. Emotions will help us determine what things get strengthened and which things get weakened in terms of neural circuits. So, But we don't ever pay attention to that strategically or tactically in our teaching, nor does technology, by the way. So what I'm looking to try and do is just think about how we can deliberately pay attention to what's your emotional state right now. As you're learning this, stop and take your pulse emotionally. What is it? Is it frustration? Is it surprise? Is it joy? Is it elation? What is it? You know, this ability to name an emotion and start to manipulate the arousal state to get the best emotions for learning is a skill, even a domain we've not even looked at doing. What technology do you know that has a tag for emotional state? Imagine the tag cloud you could get from a, from a learning uh, moment where people write down, and if it's frustration with adults, 
When you've found frustration, work on it, frame it with a growth mindset, and you've then got the best lever for neuroplasticity for adults ever. So that's what I'm suggesting going forward is to start to know these things and push the edges of our, our practice so that we can build the envelope out and start to incorporate some of these practices. I feel like I've been talking too long, <laughs> getting a bit dizzy. I've used all the oxygen up in the room. <laughs> so that was incredible. And two things as we wrap up. One, to my first question about why are you so passionate we just saw it there. And I love that. That's when we, those are the people that we need to be checking in with because we know that you're doing it for the right reasons. Now I'm, we could go on and on and on again, but I'm just going to tell you, I, I, I make tons of notes as I go. <laughs> what I did is I circled that last question about what steps can we, can we take for, you know, to help with the brain learning. I would love to spend more time with you, jump on another podcast with you, flip this again, take over. Yeah. And I'd love to go in depth with you again, another time specifically about that. Love to do another 20, 30 minutes on that. Cause that is yeah. so valuable. So if you would have me again, I would love to do it another time uh, with you. What do you think? I'd love it. It's uh it's one of those things I think we, we, we've got good conversational chemistry and uh, uh, it's one of those weird things in the world that we've not met yet face-to-face, -face, yet uh, it's like we've been mates for quite some time. So it's one of those great joys you get in our COVID world where you can connect with, with people in this sort of way. So it's good. I'd love yeah. it. Absolutely. Well, that sounds good. Well, everyone who is listening, thank you for joining us. And if you're watching, you've been enjoying our two lovely faces. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I hope you've enjoyed it. <laughs> We've tried to be entertaining and informative. Well, everyone who's been paying attention and being with us today, thank you for joining us on the EdTech Toolbox with the Twist. I've been your host, Brad Wade, with your incredible host and guest, Andrew Mowat. Andrew, thank you for being with us today. Have a great Pleasure. evening and let's chat again soon. Absolutely. Thanks again so much, Brad. Good surprise. <laughs> well That's done. Awesome. Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you later. Thanks.